praise God. So this morning I've entitled the message, The Potter's Clay. And like I said, this morning I want to go through, and, and as we saw on that video how we are God's masterpiece, I want to go through and look at the scripture that talks about that so that we can have an understanding of who we really are in God, who we are in Christ. Because the truth is, it's an incredible thing to be created by God and to be considered His masterpiece. Not only is that just a, a, a cool, mind-blowing thought, but that's just such a, if you really sit back and think about that, is that you were created by God, by the, by the Lord of all the universe. He made you. I mean, being made by God not only means that, that, we, that He created us, but that means that, he, that we are His, His workmanship. That we are what He intended us to be. We're not some happy accident. You know, man's not just some, didn't just, wasn't the result of some perfect biological storm and crawled up out of the water and turned into a monkey and then turned into us. But we were created by God. We were, man was not an accident. I want you to know that nobody in this room was an accident either. God knew you by name before you were even in your mother's womb. And he already had a plan for your life, a purpose for your life. Second, to be created by God means that we are valuable. You know when a master craftsman makes something? It has great value. You know, when you, when you see those, those master clocksmiths and they build these clocks, you know, the, uh, a clock that's created by a master smith is worth a whole lot more than a Casio you pick up at Walmart because it was made by a craftsman. And the reason it's valuable is because a master craftsman doesn't make mistakes. A master craftsman makes stuff that is perfect. And God is the greatest craftsman that ever lived when He created you. The artist that created you has no equal and His work is priceless. And you're valuable beyond measure. There's also some realities to being a masterpiece of God. To being His workmanship. First, that means that we're at the mercy of the one who created us. That means that He created us how we're to be. We don't get to pick and choose. And also, if we, as the, as the created, try to devalue ourselves, as we get up and look in that mirror and say, you're not good enough, you're not... Perfect, you're not skinny enough, you don't have a good enough job, you don't make enough money, you're not happy enough. When we devalue ourselves, when we think less than us, ourselves than we ought, we're actually insulting our Creator. You know, this morning I want to really look at and understand that we are the workmanship of God. And we are His workmanship in Jesus Christ. You see, after the fall, man was fundamentally broken, fundamentally flawed. But in Jesus, we were restored to that masterpiece that God created in the Garden of Eden. But as his workmanship, we need to be ready to be molded. When we got saved, we were supernaturally changed on the inside. At the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, you were made brand new. You were made perfect. You were made pure. You were made holy at that very moment. But we have to be able to live our lives and let, that, let our, our bodies, if you will, catch up to who we are on the inside. Let God mold us into the men and women that He means us to be. 
he wants to mold us and shape us. Much like if you've ever talked to, to, to artists that sculpt, they look at a block of marble and they already see what they're going to create. What they're going to create is already in that block of marble. And they're not creating what they're doing. They're actually chipping stuff away that's not what they're creating. When, when Michelangelo created David, he chipped away all the stuff that wasn't David. And when someone who, who sculpts into wood and makes those things, they already see what they're creating inside that wood and they just, they just saw and cut away the parts that aren't what they're creating. And that's what we need to let God do to us. Let Him take away the parts that aren't us in Christ. Amen? In Genesis 1.27, we read, it says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created him. I want you to know that you are, you are created in the image of God. You know, I think sometimes we take this for granted. Maybe we think, oh, we're created in the image of God. That means God just looks like a man. And that's not what it's talking about. When you're, when you're created in the image of God, you hold an incredible place of honor. You know, God doesn't have a physical body. He doesn't look like me in that sense. We're not created in His image in that way. But we have the characteristics of God. We can love. We can care. When He made us, we were made pure. We were made holy. We were made righteous. That's the image that He made us in. Those are the characteristics of God that we have. And you know what? To have this privilege of being made in His image is something that no other created being can claim. Birds can't claim that they're made in God's image. Dogs can't claim they're made in God's image. Not even angels can claim that they're created in God's image. Only us, only man can claim that. And we were singled out of all creation to have His life inside of us. You know, when He, when he made us, He gave us a, a mind, a will, and emotions. But if you remember in the garden, he, he, he picked Adam up and He breathed His life inside of him. He imparted His Spirit inside of Adam. And we're the only creatures that can claim that. And then on top of that, after He created us, in Genesis 1.28 it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on this earth. You know, this is not a charge you give to something that's broken, that's flawed. That's not a charge you give to something that's worthless. God trusted us. He had faith in us. He had faith in who He created you to be. See, when man was created in his image, we were created perfect, pure and holy. These are the things that you're created to be. And like I said, it's true. In the fall, man lost many of those things, but they have been restored in Jesus. You are those things the moment that you got saved. In our image, who we are is rooted in Jesus Christ. You know, if you ask a uh, a typical man, how things are going, they're going to tell you how the job is going. But if you ask a typical woman how things are going, she's going to tell you about her family. Because in American culture, a man's identity, his image is wrapped up in what he does. And a woman's identity is wrapped up in her relationships with her families. And our first instinct is to go, man, maybe the women got it right and the guys got it kind of wrong. But the truth is, we all got it wrong. Our image should be fundamentally rooted in who Jesus is. You know, things are going bad. Things are going rough. You've, you're not feeling holy. Anybody ever not felt holy? Anybody ever not felt righteous? 
When people ask you how things are going, even if you feel that way, you need to recognize that your feelings can lie to you. But your image, who you are, is rooted in Jesus Christ. And guess what? If I asked you, was Jesus holy? What are you going to say? If I ask you, was Jesus righteous? That's who you are in Christ. So if the answer is always yes for Jesus, it's always yes for you no matter how you feel. Your image is rooted in the Son of God. Because it's His life that's inside of you when you get saved. In Psalm 139, 13-16, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You know, God was there on the day you were born. He had an active involvement. I love the words that are used here because it says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then right here it says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, but intricately woven, woven in the depths of the earth. The, the imagery being used here is that of, a, of an incredibly beautiful tapestry being embroidered and knitted together and sewn together. And, and if you've ever seen that done, especially some of the extravagant ones, there's just incredible attention to detail. Everything has a place. Everything is put together perfectly because if any of that is put together incorrectly, then the, then the, the tapestry is ruined. The image is ruined. And God is like that when He created you. He knitted you together. He wove you together. He, he intricately wove you together like an embroidered tapestry, the image of your life. And it's incredibly detailed. It's incredibly intricate, but it's yours, uniquely yours. And He has a purpose for who you are. You weren't a mistake. There's not just a, an assembly line of blankets going through the mill and everybody's the same, but you're unique. God has a plan for you. And there's a purpose for your life. You see, the psalmist also gave appreciation to this because he says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He recognized all that went into that. And he's talking about the miracle of birth, which is amazing and wonderful in and of itself. But he's also speaking about your uniqueness, the purpose, what you were made for. And then he goes on to say that, that God saw you before you were born. Right here it says that my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. And then he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Before you were ever formed in the womb, before you were ever born, God knew who you were. He had a plan for your life. He goes on to say that in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. The days of your life, God is already aware of. He's planned them out. He has something for you to do. And it says that even when there was none of them, those days were already written out. You see, God has seen your life. He's put you here for a purpose. He has a plan for your life. You know, when, when God creates something with a plan for it, it can't be worthless. If you have a purpose, your life can't be worthless. And I think so many of us look at our lives and we look at what's happened or we listen to what people have told us and we begin to, to argue that, that who am I? What am I? I'm, I'm worthless. I'm nothing. But God made you specifically for a reason. 
You know, and this isn't the only time in the Bible where, where, where people minister about God knowing who they were before they were born. In Galatians 1, 15 through 16, it says, But when he had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace. This was Paul speaking about him being called to be apostle. It says, He set me apart before I was born. And then in Jeremiah 1.5, God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You see, God knows every single one of us before we were born, and he has something for us. You know, this is what's why, as Christians, we particularly find abortion so abhorrent. Because every baby, no matter how they were conceived, God has a plan for them. They were intricately woven. Now I thank God that even if people have gone through that process and they've done those things, that they're not condemned. God still loves those women that have done those things. But it's, there's definitely value in every life. Every life in this room has value. In Luke 12, 6 through 7, it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than sparrows. I want you to know that you are valuable in this room to God. Every single one of you are valuable. And how do you know if something is valuable to something? Well, if they care about something, they know everything about it, right? I bet you if I asked Jose something about motorcycles, he could tell me anything I wanted. Could he tell me anything I wanted to know? Exactly. You want to know why? Because he cares about them. That's something that he's interested in, that he, he loves it, and he cares about it. And I know from experience when talking to Wayne, if I ask him something about chess, he knows these things. He's a much better chess player than I am, seeing every time he's kicked my butt in it, and pretty much everyone in the church. But if we ask Wayne about chess, he'd be able to tell us these things. He'd be able to tell us how it works, and, and he, he knows rules that I've never even heard of. Because he cares about chess. He knows stuff about it. So what would happen if, if, you asked, if, if we asked God about you? The Bible says that he knows even the number of hairs that are on your head. That's pretty intense to know that. I mean, that's basically the, the, the Luke is saying that God knows everything about you. And he says you are valuable. You know, and our value is not determined by how we look or what we've accomplished. Too many people think so poorly about themselves that they can't even imagine God loving them. They can't even imagine, why would God love me? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know the things that I've done? They've been told so often that they're worthless that they can't believe anything else. But I want you to know that your value is not determined by what you look like or what you've done. Your value is determined by what was paid for you. You know, you can always tell what somebody else, somebody else cares about by looking at their checkbook. Whatever they spend money on, they care about. And I want you to know that if you were to look in God's check register, under transaction, you would find your name. And in the withdrawal column, it would say Jesus. That's how much you were worth. 
that he gave his son up for you. So if you ever want to tell yourself that you're not valuable, that you're not worth it, just think about that, what God paid for you. That determines your worth. And then we read in, in Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save you, will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. You know, our vision of God is, is normally stoic. Our vision of God is, is, you know, he's real reserved and conservative. But the Bible says that he rejoices over you with gladness. And not only that, he says he exalts over you with loud singing. God cares about you so much that he rejoices and he's singing out loud. He loves you that much. He's not reserved and he's not like the, the father that never tells his kid he loves him. But he's, he tells you all the time. He loves you. He cares about you. And not only that, he's making a loud noise about you. You know, nobody in heaven is curious if he loves you. They all know. They've heard him say it. They've heard him sing it. They've heard him rejoice over you. In Hebrews 12.2, it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the, despising the shame, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You were the joy set before Jesus. You were the reason that he went to the cross. He cared about you. He loved you. He thought you were valuable enough to go through what he went through. And don't think it was some easy thing that he did. If you remember in the garden, he said, Lord, if this cup can be taken away from me, take it away. He was so distressed that he was sweating blood. And this wasn't a happy time for Jesus. He, he, he wasn't able to just turn it all off, turn off the pain. It was like nothing for him. He suffered for you because he loved you that much. In 1 John 4, 4, 9 through 10, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to the propitiation of sins. You know, I think if you got up every single morning and just said to yourself, He loves me, He loves me, He loves me, they don't have an incredible impact on your view of yourself. You see, sometimes people think that God can't love them because they ascribe the image of their earthly father to their father in heaven. They figure that, you know what, God is only going to love me like my earthly father did. That's why it's often easier for people that have great relationships with their father to have a better view of, of who God is than those who, who did not, those who were, who were hurt by their father, who, were, who didn't feel the love of, uh, that a father should show them. They, they tend to ascribe that to God. But the truth is that God is, imagine the, the best father that you could ever imagine, which you always wanted in a father, and God is going to be so much more than that in your life. And also, many of us think that uh, we're unlovable because at times we've acted unlovely. Anybody ever acted unlovely? I know I've acted unlovely. And, and there's a times you think about that, and you're like, man, how could anybody love me with the way I just acted, with what I've just done? And then there's even others, especially kids, you'll see they'll, they'll act out because they're not feeling any love because they figure that, that negative attention is even better than no attention at all because they're, they're, they're hungering for love. And the truth is that a lack of love can lead to, to poor physical and mental health. It can cause us to feel like we have a hole inside of us. 
That's why you'll see people going out there and, and, and spending time with carousing with, with other men or women or, or drugs or alcohol because they're trying to fill that hole. They're looking for something that can make them feel whole. They, they'll, they'll go with any man or woman because they just want to be loved because they don't realize that there's already a God in heaven who loves them more than they could ever be loved. It's like that song that we, we sing. There's the, the, the verse that says that uh, He can love us more in a moment than another lover could in a lifetime. The love of Jesus, the love of God, is the only thing that can fill that hole. Lack of love can cause depression and, and loneliness, and it can even cause physical health problems. And a lot of that we could, we could do away with if we would just understand, if we could have a revelation of how God really feels about us. The truth is that God loves you, and He's not holding anything back because of your past. The great thing about God is He loves you in spite of your past. He's the only one besides yourself that knows everything. And the truth is, you can forget some stuff. God knows everything about you. And in spite of that, He loves you with everything that He has. Even knowing all that about you, He still sent His Son to die for you. And the greatest thing is, is nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing at all. In Romans 8, 38-39, it says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Because the thing is, God looks at your heart. In 1 Samuel 16-7 through it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, this is when, when uh, Elijah was going out to anoint King David, when he was still uh, a young man out in the fields tending sheep. And Eliab just came before, before Elijah, and God says this to him, Don't look on his appearance or on his height. Obviously, this was a dreamy dude. He was looking good. He says, don't look at his appearance. I mean, if he, was, if he was just all messed up and ugly, God wouldn't have had to tell him, don't look at his appearance. So apparently, this guy was good looking. And he says, don't look at his stature. So he was, he was tall. I mean, basically, he was a Disney prince. He, was, he just had it all going for him. But God says, don't, don't look at what he looks like or his stature. I don't look at that. I look at his heart. And I want you to know that that's how God looks at you. He looks at your heart. But you go, but wait a minute, you have no idea what my heart looks like, but I do. One, because I choose to know you guys in no other way except through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that that when you were saved, your heart of stone was removed and replaced with a heart of flesh, the heart of Jesus. When When God looks at you, he sees Jesus, and that's it. And that qualifies you. You know, if you, if you love God and your heart is directed towards Him, then He can and will use you. And there's nothing that you can accomplish in that situation. The only thing that can limit your ability to be used by God is leaning on your own abilities and on your own understanding. But if you'll lean on His, if you'll, if you'll trust God to use you, then nothing will be impossible for you. Luke one thirty seven says, For nothing will be impossible with God. And that's true in your life as well. 
So I want to take a look at a few examples here of a couple men in the Bible who acted much like any of us would look act when God begins to tell us what he thinks about us. In Judges 6, 11 through 12, we're going to hear about Gideon. It says, Now the angel of the Lord, in verse 11, came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizirite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So we'll do a quick recap. Israel is being uh, oppressed by the Midianites and the Amalekites, and right now what's happening is, is Gideon is hiding in a wine press, beating wheat. Now the problem with this picture is, is nobody beats wheat in a wine press. Yeah, make wine in a wine press, right? So what he's doing is he's hiding. He is cowering away, doing what he can, so he doesn't get his food stolen, and he's hiding. And what God comes up to him and says is, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So picture this. Gideon is afraid and he's hiding in a wine press, you know, peeking over the edges to make sure nobody can see him, to make sure no one's coming. And God says, oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, do you see what I'm doing? You know, they're not writing, they're not writing poems about this moment. I can tell you that right now. He wasn't acting with valor, was he? But God saw something inside of him that was different than what he was doing. God says, you are a mighty man of valor. You see, that's what many of us do. When God comes to us and says, I love you. We go, no God, you can't love me. Look at what I've done. When God says, you're victorious. We go, no God, no I'm not. Look at how many times I've failed. When God says, you are strong, you say, no, no, God, look, look at what happened just the other day. I'm weak. We begin to argue with God when he says, no, you're a mighty man, a woman of valor. We've all done the same thing that Gideon's doing in this story. Basically, we say to God, God, do you even know what you're doing? Do you even know what you're saying? You must be crazy. And we begin to list off all the reasons why we're not qualified to do what God has asked us to do. And then, anybody ever done this? Oh, wait, that must not be God. That must be the devil that's trying to make me do these things. I mean, God would never ask me to go, to go witness to the person in the gas station. It's got to be the devil. I want you to know the devil's not going to ask you to do those kind of things. That's God speaking to you, and he, he trusts you. He has faith, and he knows that in him you can do anything. And arguing with God when he tells us who we are and what we're capable of, we're basically insulting his ability to create. Whereas we're insulting what he has done inside of you. When God tells you you can do something, I want you to know that he created you. If he says you can do something, you can do it. I think God would know what one of his creations can do. And he'll never ask you to do something that you can't. One of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa says that, you know, uh, she says, uh, I know God will never give me anything that I can't handle, but man, sometimes I wish he didn't trust me so much. <laughs> See, Moses did the same thing. 
Exodus 4, 10 through 14, it says, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of the tongue. Moses most likely had a speech impediment. He may have stuttered. Something was going on. He wasn't good with words. And then it says, Then the Lord said to him, Who is... Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Basically he's saying, don't I have power over all of these things? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Even Moses made excuses to God. He, he was chosen to lead God's people, to lead a nation. He led Israel out of Egypt, out of captivity. And Moses said, I can't do it, God. To be honest with you, when God told me one day that I'd be pastoring and preaching, I, I did the same thing. I said, no, no, I can't, I can't do this, God. And then Moses begins to offer up all the reasons why he's not qualified. He says, you know what, I'm not a, I'm not a good speaker, God. There's no way I can, I can lead a nation. I can't talk to them. I can't. And he begins to put up excuses, just like many of us have done when God has called us to do something. And as I was reading this yesterday, God gave me a revelation of what actually happens in this story because when I first read this, we see that he says, I can't do it. And God's like, all right, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll get somebody there who can. And when, every time I've read this before, I, I was thinking that, that God kind of listened to him and it irritated him, but he, he brought somebody else to, to take care of him. Basically, he hooked Moses up. But I began to read this and I, I began to realize that, that Moses didn't get helped out here. Moses actually lost blessing in this deal. It says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses when he sent Aaron. He didn't do it to help Moses. He was, he was irritated that Moses said, God, I can't do this. When God just said, you're not hearing me. I, the, your mouth is not a problem for me. If I want you to speak eloquently, I'll make you speak eloquently. If I need you to do these things, I will take care of it. I wonder if, if, if Moses would have said, yes, God, if, if he would have never had the speech impediment again. Did he miss out on that blessing in his life because he told God no? And then God says, you know what? Is not, your, not Aaron, your brother, coming? I know that he can speak well. Why don't we tell him that he's going to speak? And, and he says, you know what? He's going to be glad in his heart. You know, I wonder when we tell God that we can't do something, what kind of blessing that we're missing out on in our lives. Matter of fact, in this particular case, Moses didn't fulfill all of what God had called on his life. Now, God's plan wasn't thwarted. He, he found another way when Moses said no. But, but as I read this, I realized that somebody else had to do what God called Moses to do. And I never want to be in that position in my life where somebody else has to do what God called me to do. In Isaiah 45, 9-10, it says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? I find this a little bit humorous because this is the kind of stuff you'd only see in a cartoon. Can you imagine the, the potter making something? He's making his clay and, and you hear the, the record stop. And the, the clay gets up and is like, Hey, what do you think you're doing? I wanted to be a teapot. 
It's, it's humorous. You know, it says, woe to him who strives. And the clay is going to say something back. Or the next one says, woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or, or to a woman, with, what are you in labor? These are kind of silly questions. Like, like what, what, you having a bowling ball? No, you're having a baby. These are silly questions. And that's what God's saying when, when God is working in you to, to talk back to him. Those are kind of silly questions. As a matter of fact, I see it as humorous. I read once someone said, I, I love the term expecting when referring to childbirth, when referring to pregnancy. It gives the impression that there's more than one outcome. It's like, like yeah, we're expecting a baby, but it could be a velociraptor. <laughs> These are the, when we question God, when, when he tells us that we're doing something, we argue back. That's the silliness of our questions. But the Bible doesn't refer to, to it as silly, though. It actually says, woe to him who strives with him who created him. Because just like, Aaron, or just like Moses, we can lose blessing in our life when we fight God. We limit God's ability to work in our life. We push back against God with what He wants to do for us. And He has that plan. He has that purpose. And we, we miss out. We're not going to thwart God's plan. God will still accomplish what He wants to accomplish. But you will definitely miss out when we argue with God. And we'll go ahead and and finish it up here. I know this one's a little bit shorter than normal, but we had a, like a 15-minute video. So, In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. Every single person in this room has been created by God. You are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece. And like that video said, God doesn't create junk. You are a masterpiece of the greatest artisan that has ever existed. And when you got saved and you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, in that moment, you were fearfully and wonderfully remade into the image of his son. You were made pure. You were made perfect. Perfect. You were made holy. And you are loved by God. You are righteous and there is no flaw within you. And you were created for a purpose that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan for your life. And if you will just let him mold you and shape you and direct you, he will use you to do incredible things. You know, in these works that he's talking about, these aren't, these aren't saving works. These, these works that we're doing, they're, they're not what's going to save you. But these works are the result of an incredible thing that's happened inside of you. It's the natural result of a person that's been changed, that's been touched by the hand of God. But in order to do these things, in order to, to be who God wants us to be, we need to let God shape and mold us. We need to let Him chisel away all that is in Christ in our lives. Amen? So let's go ahead and, and challenge ourselves to be open to what God has for us. When God tells you that you are loved, that you are worth it, that you are worthy, that you are valuable, let's not argue with Him and recognize that what He says is truth. And let's let him work in our lives. Let's let him change us into who we are to be. And let's let him, let him use us to just make an impact in this city. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.